Welcome to an episode of the Bookish Club podcast, where I am joined by two of my best friends, Katie Mullins and Ron Taylor. We are discussing, as you can see from the headline, The Vanishing Half, and it is receiving all the awards and all the great reviews, and I wanted to talk about it with two of the smartest people on the face of the planet. Fight me. Please, rate the podcast, The RJ Young Show podcast give us five stars if you leave a five star rating if it's about sports cool if it's about books even better and it is a positive review i will read it on this here podcast and you know does your business need to rank higher in the search engines do you want everything your company touches to turn to gold if you answered yes to either of those questions you and your business need to get your act together at the Pippin Ain't Easy Marketing Conference. Attend keynote speeches made by marketing gurus like Bishop Don Juan, a pimp named Slickback, and 50 Cent when he's not dragging you know, Will Smith on Twitter via the DMs. Savage. Participate in workshops and learn more about your target market and how you can get their attention in our high-tech world from such renowned professionals like Craig's girlfriend, Joy's sister-in-law's baby cousin, Tracy. This event is not free and neither are your meals. So if you a broke booty buster brown, this might not be your get down. Only real get money hustlers need apply at the Pimpin' Ain't Easy MarketingConference.com. My thanks to the Pimpin' Ain't Easy Marketing Conference for their continued partnership with the RJ Young Show podcast. Now, let's get to the book. That's how other people perceive you. How do you perceive yourself in all this was the question that I had most about Reese. And I mean, I think you're kind of getting at it, Ron, when you're talking about you're not done yet. And I'm going, well, hell, I'm, I'm five foot five. I'm not going to be six foot five. You know, and I'm not trying to make it as trivial as that. It's just what I have to relate. So maybe, maybe he's done. Or maybe it just comes to being apart from Jude to realize that he's done. But it, it, I didn't really think about it going in that direction. I really didn't. I just thought he was stubborn. <laughs> I mean, but he might be stubborn, but it's, that's the cool thing about, uh, of, of, of Reese, particularly in, you know, in a relationship with Jude is that they're complicated people. They're, they're not, Reese is not just stubborn. Reese, also has body dysmorphia and is also trying to curate themselves in to be the perfect version of themselves. So, I really, Oh, go ahead. No, that's it. that's it. I just, I really like this idea of like, what does it mean to, to be done? Right. Because I think that, I think it gets, it's a really complicated thing in terms of, in terms of uh, LGBTQ community, but also just in terms of our, our progression through ourselves, we're trying to like work toward the people that we want to be. I mean, Reese is, is male. He is. And it's, I, I can only imagine you know, the world in which it has that, been right. For our been. entirety of the, of our, of our time with him. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, that's what also was wild to look at. It's like, dude, I'm getting incensed because I don't know any other way to see you. And yet, it doesn't matter what, what, what I see. 
But it makes me think too of, of Jude and her journey of having to kind of shed the what is placed upon her um, in terms of the way that she is viewed on, on the outside. That there is a point at which I think, and every individual I think has to define this for themselves and what that looks like for them. That you have to kind of reach a an equilibrium between being able to balance what is placed upon you and being able to hold true within yourself what you know to be true and to know to be true about your identity. And so I think that that's, that's where their, their stories converge. Like there is a, a moment here where, and it begs the question, right? Like if, at what, at what point are we, are we done? At what point do we say, okay, I can weather the forces that are coming at me from the outside and hold true to who I am on the inside and, and keep all of those things in me as a, a holistic and fully formed person that can then participate in relationships that are fulfilling to me. And so I think that, Ron, to your point, I think there's an argument here, and RJ to yours too, actually, that there, maybe he, maybe this is his moment of, of being done, of being able to say, yes, I'm on this, you know, the physical journey that will continue forward and needs to continue forward for him. But as he goes through that step by step, he, he reaches a moment where he can be present enough to be with Jude without rejecting that, you know, to say, okay, the things that will come to me, I need, but as I wait for them, I can, I can hold my identity in myself enough to follow you and stay with you. I, I think the idea of being done is, is a great way to, to U-turn back to Stella because Stella comes to that point as well when she's asked, so what do you want? Like, I don't know. Maybe go back to school. And she flips her associates into a bachelor's, into a master's, and thinks, you know, it would be nice to be called doctor. <laughs> and spends it's a, a dangerous game, Stella. It's a, yeah. it's, it's a dangerous game. <laughs> and, and, and spends her time. Uh, she, she transitions away from being a housewife who hangs out with other housewives to talking to uh, the radical feminist leader of the math department. Oh, no, no, don't skip that, right? Because, like, that's got a great line in it about, you know, why else do men fuck their secretaries? I'm like, yo! And <laughs> and also in there, you know, what about black folks? What about them? <laughs> they got their issues. I'm working oh, on oh, ours. Yeah, like, talk, talking about the limits of whiteness uh, to a person who sees that there are no limits of whiteness. Man! Um, right. And they say, oh, so um, I noticed that you don't have a lot of, of, of black women or, or people of color within the movement. It's like, yeah, well, they got their own things. Uh, you know, we're all we're all moving in our own directions. Maybe maybe one day we'll 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 meet up. Who knows? By the way, is that not the conversation that is going on right now? Mm-hmm. Like I forget what this organization is called, but like Laurel was a card carrying member, and she sent hers back like twenty years ago over something like what's going on today. And I can't remember what the name of this damn organization is. I want to say it's it's. I'm not even gonna guess. But that that was in there, just as sort of an aside, right? Like it's, it's she doesn't unpack it in any way. But I feel like Britt woke up, Britt loaded the magazine with all seventeen, popped it in, racked it, and said nobody lives. Like, it's like, wait a second, who did she not go at? I haven't, this is, I'm like spinning off in a little bit of a direction now, but to build onto this idea of, you know, Stella and then, and the, again, the concept of done this, right? Like there's a, there are two sides of the same coin. There are those that can explore and explore, explore and, and 
in an attempt to self-actualize like Stella and like Kennedy. Um, and then there are those who, in order to explore must first self-actualize because they are placed in positions where because of the, of the, the ways in which our society is constructed, they, they cannot until they are first able to hold that, you know, hold their own identities firm. I mean, one of the things that I think about with Reese a lot, um, and that we still struggle with very much as a society today is that there's some misconception that it is appropriate to ask people who are non-binary or transgender at what stage of the process they are in, which is not a question because it, it's a, it's an inappropriate and violating and very ignorant question because that's what that looks like for every individual who is in the process of transitioning is very different. And what stage that person would like to you know, embody in their own physical body is a very personal and private thing that in no way is appropriate to ask a, a human being, you know, regardless of their, their sexual orientation or identity. But I think about that, you know, then when we relate that back out to, to Stella and her kind of exploratory, like she has the, the privilege to be able to go out and do this exploratory poking around and, oh, this would be fun. And, oh, this would be fun. And this would be fun. Whereas you have people on the other end of this who are, are literally trying to like Reese who are literally trying to first establish a baseline of self in order to then have the, the space to go out and, you know, do the things that Stella because of her passing is able to do so, so freely. I, it's a really, I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's a fascinating commentary on the ways in which doors are or not open to you, depending on, where you are and who you are. Whenever I have these conversations like with my friends and family that don't read as widely as I read or whatever it is, like, what are you reading then? Okay, what is the, what is the way, what, how would I communicate what you had just said, Katie, except to say, hey, don't take shit for granted. <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, like maybe you won't be able to go to a football game. Maybe don't take that for granted. And the idea that there are so many things that people continue to take for granted and, you know, like working internet connection, uh, AC, you know, stuff like that. And yet the idea being done and then having this conversation out in public and then what can you and not, what can you do and what can you not do? So I, I'm going to, I'm going to ask the crass question of the podcast on the vanishing half, which is how many people do you think read this novel? who are not black, who are not trans, and went up to somebody who is black and is trans and said, hey, have you read The Vanishing Half? I would hope not. not that many. <laughs> like, I, like, I would hope if they asked that question, it would just be, hey, I read a good book. Check it out. Um, but, you know, for, for me, I, I'm not as avid a, a reader as, as you two. So I'm not sure what circles that you would even be. I don't know. You killed off three think. books in two weeks. Yeah, I mean that's that's True. just the thing that's happened. Twenty twenty is weird, dogs. And one the, of them is the hardest book that anybody in this group has read all year, and you're like, "No, nah, I get it." <laughs> mm-hmm. But I don't hang around a whole bunch of people. Like you two are the only people that I that I spend any significant amount of time with who would be able to go to somebody and say. Hey, you should check out this book. Why? Oh, you'll see. Um, yeah, but I don't do that. that is, that's Except, a nightmare scenario to me, so I don't know. No, but that's 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 what I'm getting at. Like, 
we talk about it because we want to read stuff together and we want to talk about stuff together. But I don't. I, I used to as a in college and, and Ron, you can speak to this. I used to send people long reads and like stuff that I was reading because I wanted other people to talk about it with me, right? Because I didn't want to be alone on this island where I'm the only person consuming news stories in this particular uh, coastal bias that just doesn't make its way to my insular home state and hometown. And then, you know, you go to stuff like Story Slam and you meet people like Mullins and it's awesome because then you have people to talk about stuff with that you want to talk about stuff with. And yet, I can't tell you how pissed I was to see that The Vanishing Half is the book club book of the month for BuzzFeed books. And I was going, no, no, you let people walk into this one. You do not let the masses read this one because they're going to screw it up. I just, that was the, and that was why I put this question out there is, how much of what we're reading do we hope people have the same reaction that you just said they have, Ron? And they don't, which is to, no. So I read this highfalutin book about, oh, let me pick on an author that I know can take it. doesn't need me. Uh, oh, yeah, I read Sharp Objects. Have you read Sharp, Sharp Objects? It's real good. It's real good. Have you ever read Gone Girl? It's good. What's good about it? Uh, you know, murder. <laughs> Extortion. <laughs> marital affair. Yeah, okay, like anything else? Isn't that enough? And, and then you get into a screaming match because like, well, I mean, I get, I get why you like it, but that might not be what Jillian was after, and yet here we are. So that was why I asked that question is because this book is getting everybody's stamp of approval. I mean, I have the hardback in front of me, right? And I was not able to get a, my hands on a copy that does not have Good Morning America Book Club on it. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, it, it's funny that you say that this is the thing that, 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 is, that is getting recommended because this is why I gave the, uh, the interesting remark whenever um, you two said, wow, holy smokes, this book right here, and it, and it, and it's me over here looking at you know this uh, this book hit you know number one on one hundred six and Park, and I'm thinking this one, <laughs> this one. So so when you ask me, it's like, oh, can you imagine this book getting recommended? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I can't. But. Once again, I'm not in these circles. I, I read this book and it reminded me of just the, the millions of words that I've read from the accounts of people who have lived experiences like this, the, the, the hours of PBS talking about Jim Crow and passing on the train. I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is a book. And when you said that, holy smokes, I can't wait to talk about it. I was like, oh no, I don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm glad we're talking so much about the the concrete details of this book as opposed to the conversation around this book or maybe the conversation but like or say the mechanics of it or how it moved me because when you sent that when you told me that you were halfway through and it's like or i told you that i was halfway through and you said okay cool it hasn't hit yet and that and the whole time i'm waiting for uh, okay so like reese is that Re reese is that haven't hit yet so that we're clear okay i was past that point okay all right or I was, I was to that point. Because it's, it's one thing to introduce that character. It's another thing to do what Britt did with that character. 
which was wildly impressive, <clears throat> especially considering you know she's a she's as much a contemporary as as any living author today that was born I don't know before 1950. So that was why I was really struck by the way that she positioned the character. And then as Mullins was first to pick up on, sentence for sentence, break you go. Mm-hmm. And and I wanna I want to get into that aspect of the book as much as anything because Mullins, I, I, I divulge to you that I am I'm a I'm a nerd because I annotate everything and I take notes on everything. And you were like, yeah, I'm annotating this book. And I'm like, damn it, I annotate everything. Is that okay? well? <laughs> Grocery lists. Yeah, yeah I mean, because, you know, it's like I, I don't go anywhere without pens. I'm constantly writing about something. I'm constantly writing down a thought about something, even if it's on my iPhone, which is littered with notes, to, so much so that my best friend's all like, yo, man, you ever thought about backing up your notebook on Google Docs? Because, like, it'd be shame if all those just got deleted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And definitely a thing that I do now. Like I have the the Google Keep app on my phone, just in case. But like I did want to ask Mullins, as a connoisseur of sentences, a person who understands that she has a crutch in her own writing, like we all do. Like I saw a tweet today. It's like, what would be the progressive rock new goth name of your band if you you know as your writing crutch? And mine was uh, M Dash, the passive oh, yeah, the, the, the passive B verbs, <laughs> right? Yep. <laughs> uh, so anyway, from there, I wanted to ask you what sentences and what phrases were you most awestruck by? So I will say yes. Also, same here. Passive M, uh, passive uh, phrases and M dash, and oftentimes together, which is just the you know quite a cocktail. Um, as far as this, the the language of this book, the construction of this book, I just um, separate from the content on a on a purely high. I majored in English and. Not, not as a default, but because I genuinely love to read as on that nerd level. I just, this book is, is incredible in the way that it moves through time and the way that it, it balances development of characters with, um, the handling of the, <laughs> the, the larger, for lack of a better phrase, the larger picture, like all of that is, uh, is incredible. And I think that, um, just in the, in the ways that she creates and, interplays between scene and summary and shows us, you know, paints a a holistic picture of, if I do a quick count here, you know, five to six characters lives, um, in a lot of depth, not because she has written, you know, 30, 300,000 words, but because she is, is just that skilled at showing us those pivotal moments. Um, I'm not even sure I can like necessarily pick out a sentence or two and say, this is the moment that I fell in love with Brit Bennett's use of language. It is, it is the whole way through from the very beginning, um, from this very vivid scene in the, the page one where Desiree is bringing her daughter back to Mallard, and it's just you're just you're struck by the immersion that you're you're just suddenly in this world and unquestionably in this world, and there's not there's not even pause of like okay, let me orient myself. Like Brit's just like now nah, you're here, let me show you. Um, I just, this book is a, a masterful piece of craft in addition to uh, everything else that we've covered on this podcast and the ways in which it demonstrates mastery. I mean, this is the kind of book that as I continue my own practice of writing and trying to figure out how to how to shape story, I will return to you repeatedly to see how she moves through time and how she structures scene and how she decides 
when she is going to transition within a, a scene versus when she is going to use white space. It's all of those components together. This is just a, a master writer doing absolutely incredible work. So, Ron, you got a phrase you like? No. Okay. This this whole time that I was reading this book, I was waiting to to tumble, to go downhill, and I never got to that point. It the book felt like it for me hit a a plateau of of excitement in reading it that that never paid off for me. It's very interesting to talk about the, the concepts that were that were that were brought up are good. Like I I I love I love how we've been talking about the book to right now. It's it's great, but I didn't have a lot of fun reading it. You know, as we as we approached the end, it's a whole bunch of very interesting details for me, and that was it. I'm. I'm not a. I'm not an English major. <laughs> this, I, I mean, I, I to be. I'm not. A, I don't have a degree in journalism, so that's. I'm just a guy over here. <laughs> but to be to be very, I mean, RJ and I have had this conversation in the past too, because I am I am one that will sit in the literary slog and just absolutely love it, um, and that is very much unique to me. Uh, out of the three people on this podcast, I am the one that will that will you know fawn over these these pages and pages of description of like an object. Uh, I think that actually makes me more of the the oddball out in that sense. Typically, I think that's not. Um, again, I will RJ. I won't pretend to speak for you. I'm just going off of the the differences in both the way that we write and the way that we read. But I think that I I, I lean in that camp, which does not in any capacity mean that that is more legitimate if anything it's it's just purely uh i don't know uh, something to do with the the training of studying english plus um i don't know plus the fact that i'm just a sucker for details okay so first ron yes of course second mullins yes of course (laughs) because i mean i i had that i had both of those reactions which you know, like my my bent on co-hosting this podcast and having this library in my house and this library in my brain is I am the most superficial, pop culture-centric literary snob in existence because there are the literary people over there that are having a great discussion that I'm looking at going, y'all are talking about Miller Lite like it's not Miller Lite. Just call it Miller Lite. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> You, you think you got artisanal beer over there, but that's not. That's a 96-calorie Pilsner. Shut up. Okay? And when they go get the hoppy stuff, I'm like, people like this? Like, this is bitter. This is, no, man, you just don't have refined taste buds. Like, that's the best way I could put this, because I have both of the, I have, I've drank enough beer, right? I've read enough books to have this kind of range, and I also, you know, talk about sports for a living, so I'm, I'm only going to be so classy about this stuff. And yet, the thing that Brit does well, and the thing that I always say you have to do well when you're telling a story is have a coherent plot 
and sprinkle in a cliffhanger here and there to get me from one chapter to another. Make sure that the meaty hard stuff is in the middle so I know I'm slogging through the middle to get to the end. And also do that in each individual chapter. She treated me well with lots of white space, okay? Page breaks are beautiful, and they're my friends. Uh, to that end, go straight to hell, Jonathan Franzen, and go straight to hell, David Foster Wallace. See what I mean? Like, I've read all that stuff. I also have these opinions about that stuff. Because I'm like, yo, man, who is this for? Oh, I'm with you on that. <laughs> yeah. like, wait, Or your use of ellipses is not what they're for. You're M-dash all the way. Well, I mean, but <laughs> even that. It's like, yo, man, am I reading Braille? What are we doing here? You know, like, so I, I get what you're, where, where both of you stand on that. And the reason I asked the phrase question is because usually there's one or two that you're like, ah, I've never seen that before. And you circle it and you're like, man, I wish I had thought about that. Like my favorite is actually a piece of sports writing by Ed Hinton. And I have put my own spin on it so many different times that I'm losing track because it's uh, about A.J. Foyt, who grew up in a town in Texas I can't even remember the name of. I just remember that Ed Hinton said, population big enough to whip your ass, which I love, right? Because that speaks to my very soul. Like, I don't give a damn how big you are. And that, you know, that's who I am. And that's a good way of also who A.J. Foyt is. But in, in regard to this book didn't hit you, now I have, I have tremendous amounts of questions. Like, so you and I will have this conversation about Lovecraft Country, and, uh, which is to say we, we, we hate the TV show. Yeah. <laughs> like like I watched episode three before we did this podcast and I, I hate the TV show even more, which I didn't think was possible. That said, I hate it because I'm not learning anything new and you're making melodrama out of spaces that have tr true drama. Like they it's already there. If you're going to tell it, cool. But what you're doing is making a caricature. And I would even go as far as to say making a, a minstrel show. No, a burlesque out of racism. And you should know better. And yet with this, I wondered, did you have that experience? Did you have the experience that there's so much of this that you already know and you're, you're just not, you're not enthused? I, I, you're right that I'm, I'm not enthused, but I, I didn't get the feeling that this book was trying to teach me any collectional lessons, right? It wasn't trying to teach me... Uh, a, a freshman class 101, like, did you know this happens? Like, yes, of course I knew this happened, which is what Lovecraft does every seven seconds. I, I looked at this book and I read this book as a, you know, as a collection of lived experiences and which was, which was fine. I don't, ha I don't have an issue with that. I, I was not bored by the characters going on journeys. I was, I would say that I was waiting for, as I'm reading this book is that I'm, I'm waiting for shoes to drop. I'm waiting for, uh, like brain to, to to shout in my brain, bang, right? And I just I never got those moments. Mike Green is an NBA broadcaster for you uh, folk folks, and that's his signature phrase. And when he says it, it's awesome because right, it's you, timely, it's on time, and, and it it just fit for bang. It really is. Right. I, I was waiting for at, at every given moment, particularly whenever you say like, "Holy smokes, okay, cool." There's going to be a heat check moment. That somebody's going to go. Uh, oh no, that's that's. Take, yeah, I was I was waiting for because I wasn't under the impression that this was some sort of mystery. Play. Actually, I was. Whenever you first described this book to me, you said 
to to a, a set of twins go missing from a town uh, where everybody's light skin. I was like, ooh, that's hey, <laughs> this, that, could, that's this what could I be thought. in my bag, right? And you know, I got about fifteen pages, and it's like, oh, okay, this book is obviously not that. But 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 I was <laughs> but I was waiting for this. Uh, I was waiting for this. One going back to sports and basketball, I was waiting for this thirty foot three that hey, you have no business taking, but you're feeling it. Something that is uh, pretty unforgivable that could pay off, and I never, I never got that. Okay, like that's that's a very interesting. Uh, we need to stop saying interesting. Just need to move it from the list. <laughs> yeah, no, that's why. <laughs> that's why I said it. Right. Uh, it's a way of looking at this novel, and I make it a point not to read any of the criticism or any of the discussion around a piece that I am going to fully consume myself. And then I'll go take a look at how the discussion's going around. So like the 106 in Park, BET, Good Morning America, Oprah's Book Club, BuzzFeed Book, I just, no. I, I refuse to acknowledge it or participate. However, whenever I'm going holy smokes in a novel, it's a sense of glee because I'm seeing somebody wield a, will will ink on pages in a way that I have not experienced before, which is still a really hard trick to pull off, especially when you read compulsively and you encounter all kinds of crap all the time or stuff that you've been led to believe is really good that just doesn't hit for you. Like we have this ongoing discussion both on this podcast and out in the world about is it good or is it or is it bad or is it not just for me, right? And that's mm-hmm. that's a really important distinction when you're being critical of something like you start with the fundamentals of hey is it good is there good punctuation right uh have we read for missing words and spelling errors which is a favorite of mine because i do it all the time i'm I'm horrible to edit because i just i read something that's not there but in talking about this novel and in talking about all the characters we have not discussed at length robert or not robert blake Robert's in another novel. Do y'all have any opinions about this white dude? I mean, Blake, to me, was fun to look at in relation to Stella because Stella is completely wrapped around the idea that, oh man, what if Blake finds out? And Blake could not care less. He's not, he's not investigating. He has no suspicions. He is... For all intents, I mean, other than the the being a man of his time and racist, doesn't care about uh, Stella's past. He would like to know, but any sort of pushback that he gets is like, okay, well, I guess we'll talk about it later, and they move on. Like I think I, f- I feel like Stella is the is a, is a oh, sorry, Blake is a great addition to. Uh, the an, another side of the coin of, of whiteness, and that it's completely uh, unconcerned with an investigation of whiteness. Yeah, yeah, I, yep. So Stella, Stella is my my white secretary and wife. Uh, I am the end. Welcome to my family. Ugh. All right, uh, but also Blake's Blake's uh, mother. Knew what was up. Concerned. She knew yeah. what was up. Mm-hmm. She's hiding something. You should investigate. Like, I don't care. 
Well, more than that, normal mother-in-law stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, of course you don't like her. <laughs> so right. Why, like, she, she's battling for your attention, something you never had to battle for in the first place. Oh, right. But also, she understands that she has something to hide. What could it be? It's got to be something, you know, from whenever the book is over the shoulder of Stella. Mullins, are you are you nonplussed by Blake? Yeah, I mean, I think that he, I think that he's accurate. Um, I think that Ron, to your point about the fact that he is completely uninterested in examining or in any way unpacking whiteness, is is spot on. I mean, I think to me he is. Um, I don't know. I, I have trouble even like wanting to spend the time dissecting him because I feel as though he he kind of stands in as a a prop like character, except that the fact that he comes across as two dimensional is not a disservice to him. If anything, it is, I believe, a, a fairly um, condemning but accurate portrayal of what this character needs to be in this space and also what this character likely would be in this space. Um, I just, I, I think that he doesn't, I think that the only ways in which he is interesting are the ways in which other people interact with him. Um, and specifically the way that Stella interacts with him and the ways in which, uh, you know, as, as the family is moving in across the street, the black family is moving in across the street and she, you know, huddled this worry, like seeing him almost equally disinterested in that, like, you know, just kind of meandering through it in a way that's like, yeah, well, it's, uh, I'm just going to be racist about it, but I'm not gonna, you know, I'm, I'm going to just accept and just kind of continue in my assuming that the status quo will remain maintained. It's to me, that's, that's all that I really need to know about him to get kind of a, a comprehensive view of who he is in light of this story. Um, yeah, I don't have anything too profound to say or think about him beyond that. Yeah, I, I believe I believe Blake would probably say something that uh, um, he's somebody that I can imagine saying that I'm not racist. I just believe people um, should. Uh, <laughs> America is a meritocracy, right? So if if you do well, you can you can. He's one of the people on my YouTube channel saying I'm race baiting. Oh, I mean, oh, I don't know if he's race baiting, but he's he's absolutely no, no, I that I'm like, race baiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. Yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. Oh man, those people in your comments, your fans. <laughs> But the, but as soon as the people that that move in turn out to be, oh, you mean that guy from Hollywood, the famous one? Oh, he's he's one of the good ones. Obviously, he's one of the good ones. He can't be on TV and not be one of the good ones. And so, <laughs> they hang out with him. They talk about him being good. They invite him over. Uh, I can't think of his 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 name at the moment, but I mean, the the, the, actor. the TV star, yeah, the actor, yeah, knew what was up. His wife knew knew what was up, but because his wife is Loretta, and I got to know Loretta real well, and I like Loretta. Mm-hmm. Loretta was Loretta was cool. Like I like Loretta. She like she could hang, you know. And her husband wanting to move in there told me everything I need to know. It's like yeah, she she knew what was good. She's like no 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 no. Loretta Walker ain't supposed to be here. <laughs> oh Reggie, that's his name, Reggie. Named Reggie. Yeah. They call him Reg. Of course they call him Reg. Red driver Cadillac. I remember. I was like, man, me and this family could have been homies. Like, I like it. But to this point about Blake, the reason I ask it is because there's this anecdote that is dropped on page 91 
in the middle of the page, and it goes about Blake. He'd been shy or as a child, so he never had many friends, colored or otherwise. But he did play with Jimbo, an ugly black rag doll with a plastic head and queer red lips. His father hated his son running around with the doll. I'm not going to say the word. An N-word doll at that. But Blake carried him everywhere, whispering all of his secrets into those plastic ears. This was a friend, someone who guarded your feelings behind that frozen red smile. Then one day, he stepped into the yard and saw clumps of cotton scattered all over the grass. On the dirt pathway, there was Jimbo, gutted, arms and legs strewn, his insides spilling out. The dog must have got it, his father told him. But Blake always imagined him tossing that doll into the dog's snapping jaws. He knelt, picking it up, holding Jimbo's arms. He'd always wondered what the inside of the doll might look like. For some reason, he thought the cotton would be brown. I like that story. I don't think that Blake deserved that story. I don't know why she gave that story to him. But I like that story. Because we talk about, you know, like white folks are, are proud of saying that racism is taught. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, it is. You ever thought about what you're teaching? I'm not racist. Oh, okay. Cool. All right. Glad you know. And that's kind of what I was thinking about when I read that story is dad's relationship with Jimbo informs the kid's relationship with Jimbo. You know? And how many, how many folks get this wrong as opposed to how many folks come to understand that, hey, uh, maybe, maybe it's a good thing for the white child to play with the brown doll. At least till they decide they want another doll. And yet the idea of a, a white boy having a doll of any kind, I also thought was interesting, especially given that he's rated in, in what I'm assuming is the same range as Stella, which we're going circa 1954, right? So like, there's a lot there that I wanted, that I thought she could unpack about Blake, Brit being she, that wasn't to, to give him a little bit more of a round figure, if you will, to go back to creative writing 101, as opposed to as flat as he seems to be and a sidekick in Stella's story. Or am I just wishing too much here, guys? No, I don't think you are. But I do think that this brings up a side of him that I actually hadn't thought about before, which is that I wonder if he'd be one of the people that, if he were present today, would quote-unquote not see race. Um, because I, I feel like there is a kind of a, a tension there of like he doesn't, at the time he doesn't acknowledge that the doll is black. It doesn't, you know, it's not something that he, he thinks through. And then, of course, because it's destroyed, he never has to kind of, he never he never does the reckoning with that. He never thinks through, you know, oh, my father is racist and therefore did, you know, like he never has the, and potentially also um, misogynistic because I don't know, maybe he also had issue with the fact that this is a male child playing with a doll. Might be reading too much into it, but crosses my mind. So I, I almost wonder if this, in light of the, um, it, well, first of all, I think it kind of sets Blake up for, uh, how this plays out like he he's so unaware and he's never had to think about the fact that he might be moving through the world claiming to be colorblind what that's you know not a 
a thing um, that could point to why he is completely unaware of um, of anything that he needs to you know quote unquote investigate about Stella. But I also think then it, it feeds into this narrative of oh well, okay they're moving in there you know they they like they're okay because that's a to me this is this is the early seeds of that later mindset is that that like okay I've never had to reckon with it and so I'm just gonna move into the I don't see it at all. Am I off on that? I might be. No, no, that's that that is that is the scholarly reading. That's actually nailing it. I just, I couldn't reconcile him having that story. That That's all. Like, I mean, I don't, it, it is his story, but I don't think this story about him. I don't, I don't think Blake is so much a, a person, but it stands for a concept, which I, I said earlier is that, you know, whiteness is unconcerned about whiteness, but is, you know, very concerned about blackness. Same thing with, you know, being, being black is to be, always concerned about blackness because it's within the shadow of, of whiteness. So his dad was, his dad saw a, or sorry, Blake saw a doll. It's just a doll. Um, it does, it's not a stand in for anything else, but for his father, it was, he's playing with, he's playing with a black doll. He's playing with, he's interacting with having a discourse with blackness and I need to um, show him or remove this from the way that we understand the world or that you know, Blake understands the world. Blake has a story and he might think about it every now and then, but I, I think the, the, the flashback that we get up for it, it's not so much that Blake comes to some sort of realization. It's just that this is the world that he was brought up in. And we are meant to understand that as, you know, reading it. All right, so I kind of want to wrap up with the conversation around grandma because uh, I thought she was she's interesting toward the end. Like at, at from jump, like I can't stand this lady. She really get on my nerves. I really don't like her. And by the end, I don't know what to do with her because you know under the cover of dementia, she's speaking all this truth and all this honesty in very clear terms and man we have not even begun to discuss early yeah i mean you want to be here another 35 no, man, i mean i'm i mean i'm i'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm we, going to spent, edit i'm going to edit this down because <laughs> we really haven't spent that much time talking about desiree and we we absolutely could talk about desiree coming back first off desiree running away with stella moving to atlanta Having a, a, a bit of trauma, have a bit of trauma, that's an understatement. But coming back to the safety of, of Mallard and meeting a man named Early. And the, because we have, you're right, we have talked about Early and the description of Early, early on is, it's it's pretty amazing. He's absolutely. I felt like I, she I was. I guess, nope, you're going to, I can't, I, we can't get into it. No, nah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> look, uh. I'm, like as I said, I'm gonna edit this down. There, there are going to be lost portions of this tape. Uh, That's fine. <laughs> but also, like, I felt like she wrote two different novels, and her editor got a hold of her and said, "No, you have something here that is really, really gorgeous. 
let me help you. And then we got what we got, because I don't think that she set out to tell this story, man. I'm, I'm almost certain of it. Like, I don't, I don't care what she says. I'm reading her work, and I'm going, there's two different stories here, and you chose one track, and I really love that because we got what we got. But in her description of Desiree, in her description of Mallard, in her description of Early, the first 50 pages of this novel, you can chop off and still get where you're going. It's true. I had the same thought, actually. But that's, no, that's part of the joy. I, but I, exactly. Like, I think that's a craftsman's look, right? You and I, we, we do this stuff. So we read it, taking it apart, reverse engineering it, and we're also going, hold up, time out, wait a second. You took a break. <laughs> it's like, you put this down for a little while. Mm-hmm. And then you came back to it, which I love. But like, and then, you know, I'm, I'm also, I'm, this is, this is the Reddit sleuth part of my brain, if, uh, if you're at all interested. I go to the acknowledgments on every one of these books. One, to read whose agent is who whose editor is who, so I know who I'm pitching or not pitching. And then you get to, you know, that she really helped me wrangle this book, this unwieldy book, and challenging me to grow as a writer. And I'm going, eh, we're not really giving that one out if we don't feel like we want to give that one out because we like to think that we're gods of our own universe. Like, it's a collaborative effort, but only because I say so. <laughs> right? <laughs> not, not, not because I go into this as collaborative. It goes, no, 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 no. I'm making the thing. You're welcome to help me sand it down. You know, it's not that stark and, and nobody's that much of an asshole because people really do want to help you and work with you and I think that we should train editors in the way that we train writers and we don't. That said, knowing that early was such a big part of this novel to begin with and all but disappears until what, the last 50 pages? Like he's in the first mm -hmm. 50 and the last 50? It's almost as mm -hmm. if somebody said to her, sweetie, did you, did you forget that, that Desiree got a man? Because he doesn't come with her when she goes to see Reese and her daughter. Like, did you forget? Do you, did, you, did you think that maybe stepdad wants to, wants to talk on the phone when she calls home? Or be mentioned in the background doing, doing something? Washing dishes while you're on the phone? Just little stuff. I, you know, I, I don't think they forgot about Early. I, I just think that they set him up to be the person that he is and have Desiree be... A bounty hunter with a heart of gold? Yeah, and so Desiree is, <laughs> is, is, is somebody that is forever searching for her sister. So every time that we shoot back to Desiree, should, or, or we have a small flashback from Jude, we always get a little bit of, little bit of Early. He's always out. He's taking another job. He's chased down a few more leads. He's um, <laughs> lying to his boss, chasing down other leads. Uh, it, that he he serves the he serves a function of that that this, this idea that you should always be searching that that the the search is never over and it bleeds back into you doing whatever she's doing by you know chasing down Kennedy however however. Uh, wherever she is or how she is or constantly connecting and needing to find out more because Desiree is always trying to find out more. But if you like, as you described the novel to me and they brought up early and he's, 
He's a manhunter who doesn't care about what happens to people. He just has a job to do. I've seen things. I've been places. I've been, okay, cool. This the this detective story is about to about to kick off something nice, and then his part ends, and <laughs> we only we catch just faint uh, glances of him all the way up till the end. Shop next section. <laughs> Wait a second. Early went to prison. Man. What? What do I know about? What do I know about? Why can't he stay at home? What do you mean he likes to sleep under the stars? Okay, cool. Book's over. All right, Mullins. Reverse engineer this novel. And, and from the standpoint of what do you do with the first 50 pages if you don't get what you got in, uh, in what Brit did? I think that is a fantastic question, and I have absolutely no idea. It's being very, I, I, part of what I really enjoy about this book is that, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't actually know how you would, what else you would fill it with. I mean, as much as it does feel like there's a jump and a break and, you know, we, we have this like very complex world built with these very rich characters and then we actually leave them for most of the novel to follow others. I, I don't know what could go in lieu of, like, I, I actually just don't. I don't have an answer for you. Um, I'd be interested to hear your thought on it, though. You get her. You get. You get. You get Raymond Chandler. That's what I think you get. I think you get Raymond Chandler. I think you get a real good, hard-boiled detective novel with a brilliantly brightly lit braid braided a, a strand braided into this narrative that is race and you have a good conversation about uh black life and like you you don't really talk about Jude's dad because Jude's dad is a POS and in being a POS I wanted to have that conversation I wanted to see what that looked like I wanted to investigate that and investigate a dude like Early, who only shows up to hunt people. Like, that's what he calls it. Like, I call it a bounty hunter. I might even call it bail enforcement. He called it hunting. <laughs> and he said, I'm great at it. And you know how good I am at it? Loan sharks pay me to do this. <laughs> and he found her, like, overnight. <laughs> and basically, he was, like, playing with his prey on a plate. You know, like, caught the, the mouse by the tail. And just was like holding it still. I lost, what is it, Scar in The Lion King? The animated one, not that trash that y'all went and watched a couple years ago. Right at the beginning, you mean, where he's like playing right. with, yeah. Right, oh, you yeah, made me lose my lunch? About. Yeah, that's that's how I yep. felt when Early walked into the bar. Oh, yeah, he's, 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 a, he's a detective. You know that you're about to read a cold detective story when your detective's name or your your investigator's name is just a noun or, or an adjective or an adjective or both. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, like MF or <laughs> like what kind of name is easy or like what kind of name is early. Okay. So now I, you brought it up. I wasn't going to be the first man to do it. I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't going to do it. The difference between early and easy is, uh, nothing. No, the, 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 the it's like, see, I, like I, just, I said Ray Chandler. Mm -hmm. Didn't I? I said Ray Chandler. You did. 
I picked another detective writer. <laughs> oh my god. I should have come out with like Nancy Drew. <laughs> what I should have come out with. See, and, and I don't know if this is a if if this was some sort of like you say this started out as a different book and, and then turned it into what it is. Or if this is just a this is just a small bit of sample that you have on your track to open it up. Like this is just a small homage and then we move on to the next part. Yeah. Well and and by the way, that's a chance, right? That's a that's a chance taken. Like she follows the rule, and the rule is leave the good shit till the end. That's the rule. Save it. Uh, be very, 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 very superficial at the beginning. But that's also a risk that so many of us don't want to take because you know we want people to read our stuff and we want to get we want to get our books bought. So like you know, in your pitch, you 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 can't you can't lead with what she led with. That's that's impossible. Like I could I could just easily see an editor throwing this out, going, I, "This does not move me." But you might get to Reese. Or you might get to Jude and Kennedy, and you're like, tell me more. Right? And we don't get that till second half of the novel, which I thought was, again, interesting because I, I, I keep going back to Lauren Groff because I just mentioned to start this, this uh, podcast. I think I'm going to edit that out, though. Uh, I don't like rereading stuff, and yet I reread Lauren Groff because I'm trying to figure out what it is she's doing so I can kind of do it myself. You know? Like, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about Fates and Furies and how, well, dude, like the first half of that novel, I'm like, why do people keep telling me she's good? Yep. <laughs> like, because it's, it's intensely plain. It's opaque. Like it's, it's literally translucent on the page and you're going, I don't like this. And then you get to Matilde and you're like, Ooh. Oh, 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 but you and got she cashes in on everything that she builds. Right. But you every single thing. And, you know, I think it's it's one thing to do that. Right. And to learn to do that. And that's a process. And, you know, that's that's really intense work to get to be good at that sort of building. But it's another thing to show that kind of restraint, because I feel confident that I can build that way. I am not so confident that I can show that kind of restraint because I'm like, no, everybody needs like everybody needs the fire hose when they see this lit match. Right. As opposed to, nah, man, just let the match become a fire, like campfire. Then, you know, maybe burn a few trees. Then when it looks like it's about to just all go up in smoke, then you come out with the fire hose Then you systematically put it all out and you tell everybody, see, this is how we make fertilizer. Like I was, I, ugh. and the, again, I think that's, that's where an editor can help you so much because being buried in this stuff, you don't, you're not really seeing straight half the time. And we've lost track of some of these characters and they're not that many. Like that was the other thing I was right now when I was taking my notes is, um, you know, kind of sort of making a list without consulting the novel of principals and minors. And you know, like I remembered the white lady who was like, you know, women's rights, but I completely forgot about early. You know, I completely forgot about uh, my man that owned the diner because his name's still on the front. Was it Ray's? 
Yeah. And they just, yeah, we're just going to call it Desiree's now. Right. It's not going to change the sign or anything. Right. You know, or Mallard, like Mallard Fillmore? Yeah, like Mallard Fillmore. Nah, it's just uh, there's a lot going on here. And to do it in, I don't know, what is this? What is this, 80,000, 80, 85,000 words, give or take? If even, yeah, 300 pages, yeah, yeah, maybe a little less. Yeah. I mean, she got she got a lot done. Again, she treated me well. Like, good way for me to keep reading your novel, give me some white space. Give me some breaks. Let me not get in trouble for having to finish this chapter or get to a space break. You know? Um, all right. We really do got to wrap it up. Uh. Do y'all want to hear me talk about the Memory Palace or Memory Palace? Uh, that's that's a podcast, RJ. The Memory Police. I do. I gotta hop off around seven. Oh, cool. That's just enough time. All right. So, this novel is about the nature of stuff being removed from you, and I'm not even just talking about like books and you know birds, which was the first thing to go, which was really weird. But you know, you no longer have your left leg. Then you no longer have your arm. And then you no longer are. You cease to exist like a, an entire island full of people. You're never given any real reason as to why. But you know that the memory police are Gestapo, but that's all you know. You don't actually hear of a government outside of the memory police. It takes place really between two principal characters. One's a novelist, one's an editor. The editor apparently remembers everything, but is stowed away in a place where the memory police can't find him. And then you got a novel inside this novel about a typist who loses her voice and is taught to type by her typing instructor who slowly, in teaching her how to type, steals even more of her voice and her ability to, like, fend for herself. So somehow she gets locked up in a clock tower and never heard from again. Becomes a part of the walls. And I looked at this novel by Yoko Ogawa and I went to the back and I said, okay, there's a sentence here that says that this woman has won every Japanese literary prize there is to win. So she's good. Like, categorically, she's good. Why does this novel feel like it's not? And yet, when I go look at literary Twitter, where I read some of the discussion of this novel, all people want to tell me is how good it is. And I'm going, nah, man. So maybe it's like a super hoppy beer. You know, and and maybe I just don't have the taste buds for it. Maybe I'm just not there as a reader. But my God, I've never slogged harder through 274 pages of what is not a, a tall book. You know, it's a short book. I feel like it might be 65,000, 60,000 words, somewhere in there. And yet I'm just going, chucking it against the wall. Like, every step of the way. I had a hard time getting from 274, or not 274, 254 to 274. It took me two days to read 20 pages of something that does have short chapters and some white space. And yet I'm going, what are you doing? What are we doing? You're just talking about how stuff gets to disappear and making novelists and editors feel real highfalutin because we are the keepers of story. Stories exist because we tell them. That is our utility. I hate that. Like, I believe it, but I hate that as a as a need to say something that is good. Like, we're going to tell stories because that's what we do. 
what stories get hung on to and what don't, well, you know, who won the war? But outside of all of that, I'm also trying to reconcile, is there something about Japan that I don't know? Right? Because this novel does not necessarily take place in Japan, but feels like everything about it is Japanese. See, I didn't have, I, I, I look forward to reading this book because I, I did no research before you said, or as you said, you, me, I'm reading The Memory Bliss. I said, cool, and picked it up, and I, and I flipped to the first few pages. As I'm, now that I'm looking it up, this is a, this is a book that came out in 1994 that was written in Japanese, was translated in 2019. So I, I, there's a guarantee, and this is what I would love to, when I read it and we talk about it, that, that there, you are now, you're now out of the place of where this novel was written and away from the place where this novel was written in a language that probably has a, a different way of talking about things than you understand it. Not better or worse, just different. Yeah, I'd love to see what's lost in translation, or if if anything's lost in translation. I think the translator is British, and I say that because he spelled rifle with two Fs. Ooh. Yeah, as in you know rifle through. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, I'm not. I'm gonna put it on the. I'm gonna put it on the. If you want a challenge list, that's where I'm gonna put it. Um. Parting shots because Mullen's got to go, and we all should pro probably go because this is two hours that it's getting edited down to God knows what. I thought this book was a triple double in the vein of Russell Westbrook's Nipsey Hustle because that's how it was described to me. I thought it was a 20 20 20 game, but it actually turned out to be 11 10 and 10. He lost that game. I know. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> So yeah, there there it is. It's a, it's still a triple double. It's probably not as as grand as uh what you see the people that are on the reading list talking about it. That's me. Um. Yeah, I suppose I would echo a lot of that. I think that um, I mean, again, I'll you know I'll, I won't go off into my rave about how beautiful the book itself is, but it is. Uh, I do think that it's one that um. I don't know. I, I think this is just a master storyteller at work. I'm gonna actually just gonna leave it there. Uh, that that's that is time. Uh, follow Ron on the Twitters at Ron of All Trades. Follow Katie Mullins on the Twitters at Katie R Mullins. Um, tell my best friends that I am really excited to talk about this book. That she like Mullins went out. It's like, do we have time? And I was like, yeah, we have time. She's like, we don't have time. And she was right. Uh, I have deleted my Twitter account. This is the Bookish Podcast. Thanks for listening.